This podcast is brought to you by Reynolds & Reynolds, the industry leader in automotive technology. Learn how operating differently can help you overcome the pressures facing your dealership today at reyrey.com slash operate differently. That's R-E-Y-R-E-Y dot com slash operate dash differently. Welcome to Daily Drive for Monday, September 11th, 2023. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News here in Detroit. And I'm Jake Neer in Detroit, in for Kellen Walker. Today on the show, a new report says Tesla's supercomputer will likely boost its stock price. Asbury could grow to the fourth largest dealership group with its latest deal. And the UAW Detroit 3 negotiations continue as the deal deadline nears. Plus, we'll hear an excerpt from the newest podcast series from Automotive News, Driving to Zero, the auto industry's roadmap to carbon neutrality. There's an environmental story about every single bit and bob that goes into every single automobile. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. Nearly two years after purchasing Larry H. Miller dealerships in one of the largest deals in auto retail history, Asbury Automotive Group has an encore. Publicly traded Asbury plans to buy the privately owned Jim Coons Automotive Companies of the Mid-Atlantic. It would be the first dealership mega deal since the frenzied fourth quarter of 2021. On Friday, Asbury said it agreed to spend $1.2 billion to purchase Jim Coons Automotive. The deal is expected to close in the fourth quarter or early in the first quarter. It would add 20 franchise dealerships, six collision centers, and one used car store to its portfolio. Tesla's Dojo supercomputer could power a nearly $600 billion surge in the automaker's market value by increasing the adoption of robo-taxis and its software services. That's according to Morgan Stanley analysts. The electric vehicle maker started production of the supercomputer used to train artificial intelligence models for self-driving cars in July. It plans to spend more than a billion dollars on Dojo through next year. Morgan Stanley analysts said Dojo can open up new addressable markets that extend beyond selling vehicles at a fixed price. Their report said if Dojo can help make cars see and react, what other markets could open up? Think of any device at the edge with a camera that makes real-time decisions based on its visual field. The stock today was on track to add about $70 billion in market value as of recording time. Morgan Stanley is one of Elon Musk's key advisory firms. Western sanctions against Russia are boosting demand for China-made cars and trucks, and the surge could continue as long as the sweeping sanctions remain in place. That comes from an executive with China's Auto Association. He said Chinese automakers are also seeking to assemble vehicles in Russia to localize production. According to CAM data, Russia was the top destination for China's auto exports in the first seven months of the year. There were 464,000 cars sold. Mexico ranked second. Last year, Mexico was the top importer of Chinese cars, while Russia was the fifth largest importer. Imported Chinese vehicles now account for 49% of Russia's market, compared with a pre-war share of 7% in June 2021. That comes from Autostat data. Chinese automakers are also assembling vehicles in Russia, taking over factories that were vacated by Western automakers. And a potential strike looms as the UAW's contracts with the Detroit 3 expire at the end of the day Thursday, and the sides remain pretty far apart. 
On Friday, UAW President Sean Fain called Stellantis's offer deeply inadequate. The automaker's contract proposal would raise hourly workers' pay 14.5% during the next four years. That compares to initial offers of 15% by Ford and 16% by General Motors. Their proposals called for some of the increases to be paid in lump sums, though. Stellantis said the full 14.5% would be given through hourly pay increases that carry forward into future years. Fain reiterated that the union does not want to strike, but will walk off the job at any company it does not have a deal with at 11.59 p.m. on Thursday. He said negotiations are ongoing with every company. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, this report about the Dojo supercomputer saying it would create a $600 billion surge or could create a $600 billion surge in Tesla's market value. We were talking a little bit before recording today. You seem a little skeptical. Well, sure. I mean, you can't deny the stock is up, you know, 10%, $70 billion or more in market cap. That's, you know, more than Ford, you know, or General Motors. Uh, the valuation of those automakers is uh, where it is. Here's the thing. When I was at Bloomberg, my colleague there, David Welch, um, did a really interesting report. He looked at what Morgan Stanley's own investment team did relative to what Adam Jonas advised to do on Tesla stock. And pretty much the pros did the opposite of what that sell side analyst said. If Adam Jonas told customers to buy, they sold. And if they told them to sell, they bought. It was really uncanny and makes me very wary. Definitely a grain of salt to consider there. Coming up, we'll talk about a new podcast series from Automotive News, digging into the auto industry's road to carbon neutrality. That's next on Daily Drive. Economic uncertainty, vehicle affordability, and ever-increasing customer expectations are threatening the profitability and efficiency gains you've made over the last couple of years. You may be finding the strategies you've used to improve performance in the past just aren't as effective as they once were. You offer online options so customers can begin the buying process remotely, but your salespeople have to rebuild the deal or correct it during the in-store appointment. You ask your advisors to be proactive about calling customers to get work approved, but still wind up with occupied bays and stalled jobs when the customer doesn't answer the phone. Your business office clerks are trying to process deal jackets faster, but funding still takes weeks. The strategies you've used to improve performance in the past just aren't as effective as they once were. Getting better at outdated and inefficient processes will only get you so far. Let's face it, Netflix isn't a household name because they got really good at mailing DVDs. And nearly half of Apple's revenue comes from the iPhone, not from the computers the company was founded on. These companies evolved as new challenges presented themselves instead of sticking with the status quo. It's time for a mindset shift. It's time to operate differently. Finding new and innovative ways to operate is essential to effectively managing the pressures facing your dealership. Visit reyrey.com slash operate differently to get started. That's R-E-Y-R-E-Y dot com slash operate dash differently. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Jake Neer. Jake, you've been pretty busy lately working on a <laughs> new series. Um, tell us what it's about. Yeah, so this has been months in the making. I'm really excited to share this with everybody, but this is a look, a really deep and sort of 
holistic look at the industry's move to carbon neutrality. I mean, it's not just about the EVs. It's not just about electrification. It's every facet of what the auto industry is doing at this point. And that's something that we got to see up close, you and I, as we sort of did some tours, including one of Magna's facility uh, in Brampton, Ontario, where we got to see all of the big and little things that this huge supplier is doing to cut its footprint. And, you know, that was one of the episodes. We also talked to many industry insiders about what's going on, government officials and analysts. um, You know, it's just a really uh, fascinating look, I think, into what's going on. Yeah, the trip to Brampton was a lot of fun. I mean, I'm kind of a plant rat. I (laughs) uh, started off covering the auto industry, you know, by covering a factory. And so I I love the way they work and, of course, the way they make improvements year to year and week to week. And we got to see some of that up there at uh, the Magna plant in Brampton, Ontario. Absolutely. And we also talked to historians about sort of how we got here as well. Um, Some of the really interesting stories that have happened in modern history, too, about uh, how the government has tried to work with automakers on reducing their carbon footprint. Uh, So, yeah, lots and lots of voices in here. A lot of good stories with some, you know, some very real tension. You know, you've got a lot of really decades of uh, built up hard feelings between environmentalists and automakers, sometimes with regulators, you know, and of course, we dug into some of the uh, interesting, you know, company-specific stories like how GM became a advocate for an all-electric future, and maybe why Toyota is more reluctant on that front. That's right. Yeah. No, we talked to Gil Pratt, the chief scientist at Toyota, and also a lot of the critics of Toyota. Uh, we spoke to as well. So that's another great episode that's available now. We wanted to bring you a piece of this so you could kind of hear how we approach this. And uh, as I mentioned, we talked with a historian, Chris Wells, who's a professor and chair of the Environmental Studies Department at McAllister College. He's written many books on cars, their environmental impact, how the entire infrastructure of, you know, movement in America has affected the environment over the years. And uh, we sort of zeroed in on Ford's Rouge plant and sort of how that has represented the industry's environmental footprint going back, you know, 100 years and how that just one factory and its evolution is sort of emblematic of how the whole industry has evolved on this front. So here's a little bit of uh, Chris Wells, and we'll hear some more voices in just a few minutes. One of the sort of best ways that I know of to tell this story is to zoom in on the Ford River Rouge plant in the 1930s, partly because Henry Ford was kind of famous for integrating his entire company (laughs) vertically, which is to say he wanted to own sources of raw materials for every part of the car. And he made a big deal out of this. He made it part of the way he publicized the Ford Motor Company. That means we have all kinds of historical and archival material that shows all of the different things that went into making a Ford car at the time. It's when you start to look at the vast holdings that the Ford Motor Company had to accrue in order to make all of its cars in-house, so to speak, that you really begin to get a full appreciation for the environmental implications before coal went into the boilers at Rouge to do anything, right? So 
all of the leather in the seats, all of the iron ore that had to be mined, all of the coal that had to be mined in order to make all of the things, uh, vast forests in Michigan, an elaborate rubber plantation in the Amazon, right? All of these things, and that's really just scratching the surface of all of the different materials that are in a car. Like that's the bulk in, in terms of weight. But there's an environmental story about every single bit and bob that goes into every single automobile. That all has to be harvested and collected and transported to, in this case, the River Rouge factory, which itself had an enormous environmental footprint locally, right? All of the energy that it consumed to make the cars, all of the people traveling to and from the plant, all of the materials traveling to and from the plant. That environmental story is also pretty involved because the, the Rouge did a lot of stuff that was environmentally problematic. All of the emissions, all of the toxics, all of the waste, all of, right, all of that had to go somewhere. And a lot of it ended up in the soil and in the air around the factory. Other waste and toxins had to be shipped away and disposed of elsewhere. And of course, the carbon went up into the atmosphere. That's another kind of environmental story, right? And that's before you get to me buying a car and starting to use it. Um, and that, of course, also has an environmental story. Even projecting back to 1930 and Ford's River Rouge plant and thinking about what that looked like and what that meant and trying to get, a, get your arms around the environmental implications of just this one factory making this one vehicle. Really important one, huge part of the market, but only a small part in the grand scheme of things, right? The Rouge plant in 1930 couldn't be more different from the auto industry today. And so that, even that life cycle approach, if, if you do it in 1910, and then again in 1920, and then in 1950, and then again today, each time you look at it, it's a new thing. And all of those really complicated relationships have grown and evolved and changed in really interesting ways. The Rouge today really looks nothing like it did in the earlier part of the century. It's really held up as an example of what you should do with a large manufacturing campus in terms of the environment. That's Michael Martinez, who covers Ford for us here at Automotive News. He tells Jamie and me that Ford made a big effort at the beginning of the 21st century to try to correct the mistakes of the past at the Rouge. Back when it first opened, Henry Ford really wanted to vertically integrate every part of the manufacturing process, the environment be damned, right? You had iron ore coming in off the freighters from the Rouge River. You had steel, you had glass, uh, all sorts of facilities, all working its way ultimately into the production of vehicles. Around the turn of the century, though, Ford really focused on reestablishing the Rouge as an environmentally friendly place. Uh, everything from the skylights in the plant to let in more natural light so you didn't have to use as much energy during the day to cleaning up a lot of the soil, uh, pollution in the soil caused from those early years with all the chemicals. There's stormwater management provisions in place today. It has a living roof 
on the top of the building. It's the most noticeable, and it's probably the biggest environmental impact there. So the Rouge today looks nothing like it did before. You mentioned that this was the turn of the century. I mean, this, in a lot of ways, this was a, a Bill Ford project, right? He was was chairman then. I think Jack Nasser was still CEO, but he was able to, you know, refocus the company and their efforts on uh, being better stewards of their property. I think anytime you talk about Ford Motor Company's efforts in terms of environmentalism, it starts and ends with Bill Ford, whether it's the Rouge or anything else the company's done. He's been an advocate for the environment since he started at the company. He always jokes that when he joined in 1979, he was told to stop associating with any or all suspected members of environmental organizations. He uh, was instrumental in helping Ford start its first uh, corporate sustainability report. They were among the, the first automakers to do that. He gave a now legendary TED Talk that's held up in Ford circles as this great visionary piece of video that where he argued against selling more and more cars when the sole purpose of his company is to sell more and more cars. I've been involved with the auto industry my entire life. And for the past 30 years, I've worked at Ford Motor Company. And for most of those years, I worried about how am I going to sell more cars and trucks? But today I worry about what if all we do is sell more cars and trucks? What happens when the number of vehicles on the road doubles, triples, or even quadruples? There were some uh, within Ford who believed that all this ecological nonsense should just disappear and that I needed to stop hanging out with, quote, environmental wackos. I was considered a radical. I'll never forget the day I was called in by a member of top management and told to stop associating with any known or suspected environmentalists. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I had no intention of, of doing that. And I kept speaking out about the environment, and it really was the topic that we now today call sustainability. So it really does start with Bill Ford. He really took that as a challenge uh, to make the company better in terms of its environmental presence. Driving to Zero is available now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Jake Neer, in for Kellen Walker. Thanks to our own Alicia Anderson for her help on today's podcast. Today's episode included reporting from automotive news reporters Jack Walsworth and Vince Bond Jr. You can get the latest news on UAW contract negotiations, major investments in auto plants, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. Come back tomorrow for a conversation with former EPA official Margot Oge. If you enjoyed the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. 